This is Unicorn Builders, where we tell the untold stories of the founders who've defied the odds and built billion-dollar companies. Here's your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines.io. Now, let's jump straight into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Tomer Sharan, founder and chief product officer of Dremio, a data lakehouse platform that's raised over $400 million in funding. Tomer, thanks for chatting with me today. Yeah, thanks for having me here. Not a problem. So to kick things off, can we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Sure. So I'm the, uh, the founder of uh, Dremio, founded the company in 2015. And then prior to that, I was uh, one of the early employees in the VP of product at a company called MapR, which was uh, also actually in the kind of big data analytics space. And then prior to that, I actually was born in Israel, uh, spent my first 10 years of my life actually in the Bay Area. That's where my dad was doing his uh, PhD at Stanford and moved back to Israel when I was 11, did my uh, middle school, high school there, served in the military, IDF, undergrad, and then uh, at some point decided, you know, after working at a few companies, IBM Research and Microsoft decided to move to the U.S. Initially, uh, Carnegie Mellon uh, started studying there, decided at some point that a PhD wasn't uh, wasn't my thing, and then went into uh, basically back to work. <laughs> we speak with a lot of Israeli founders, and the question we like to always ask because of their military services, you know, what was the big lesson you learned or the, the big takeaway that you learned from that experience? You know, I, uh, I'd say I grew up as a, uh, a pretty introverted and, and shy kid. And when I served in the military, I was, I was actually in the Navy and at some point became kind of a commander and, um, uh, had, you know, a group of soldiers I was responsible for. And yeah, I still remember that first experience where I was, uh, the youngest, uh, commander in the, uh, Navy training base. And because of that, I was forced to go do a presentation to 600, uh, soldiers on stage. And I was like, okay, I had never presented probably in front of 10 people prior to that. And so that experience, leadership experience at a young age, uh, being responsible for the lives of other soldiers is something that in the military, you you get to do at a much younger age than you would otherwise in life. And so that for me, that gave me a lot more confidence and kind of leadership skills. And otherwise I, I would have had really, really changed me. I, I think. And take us back to when you were maybe, you know, 15, 16, 17 years old. Was there this idea in the back of your head that someday you wanted to start a tech company or where did that idea come from? And, and when did that idea start to really develop for you? Yeah, you know, it wasn't, uh, I think now about my kids, I have, you know, I have four kids and, you know, we try to teach them may start programming when you're really young. Uh, I really only got excited about programming when I was uh, at maybe 15. You know, my dad was working at Intel. He came home with this uh, very early laptop. I think these were like 10 inch screens or something. And I saw the internet at this open house thing for employees. And I was really enamored with that. Just seeing, uh, I think it was the first Yahoo website. Um, you can actually look at a directory of websites and yeah, it was really cool at the time. <laughs> and so that got me super, uh, super excited. I started a campaign at home to convince my dad to actually buy me a personal computer. It was a Packard Bell at the time. That was one of the big PC companies. And I lobbied for that, uh, for a long time until finally, uh, uh, they bought me one. And then I, I was really excited about building stuff. And I started um, JavaScript was just uh, created by a company called Netscape at the time. And I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. And you know, one thing led to another. I ended up actually, uh, there were no books on JavaScript at the time. And I was just sitting there. I was like, I wonder if I could write a book. <laughs> and so that's actually maybe my first kind of entrepreneurial thing was writing a book at a time when that was not as kind of common, I guess as it is now. I literally wrote 30 letters in the mail. I was sitting in Israel 
uh, to U.S. publishers and got 29 back that said no. <laughs> and one, it was a really unknown publisher, basically said yes. And so, um, you know, I think the book, you can still buy used copies uh, on Amazon even to this date. <laughs> You'll have to send me a link to, uh, to check that out here after the interview. Yeah, that was, you know, a first kind of entrepreneurial experience. And I think hearing a lot of no's is also something that uh, as an entrepreneur, you got to be used to and expect, right? And we, we see that all the time with the uh, you know, people talk to me when they're fundraising and things like that and hearing a lot of no's. And I always tell them that story and I tell them that, you know, all they really need is one person to say yes and the rest doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, glad you got introduced that early on. I'm sure it's made your, uh, your career much easier later on. Now, you spent a lot of your career in the Bay Area and in Silicon Valley. I know you recently left. My question here is, you know, let's imagine that you were starting a company again today or maybe a more fun way to think about this. Let's say that, you know, one of your children comes to you and says, hey, I want to start a tech company. Where would you tell them is the best place to be? Would it be Silicon Valley? Would it be Tel Aviv? Would it be Miami, as you sometimes read in the media? Like, where's that dream place that you'd recommend a founder to set up shop if they're starting a tech company today? Yeah, you know, I, I think today it's a lot easier to do it in many different locations. I do think starting at one of the hubs, so Silicon Valley, obviously being the number one uh, location is great. You know, Israel's, of course, a big uh, startup location. So that's another another good one. But when you do start in the hub, then you just get to meet a lot of people, right? You can have coffee with another entrepreneur and, you know, every day and, you know, get all sorts of tips. And of course, the lawyers that work with the companies are there and the investors, there's a lot of investors there. And so things I think can just move faster. And I, despite, you know, we're living in this world of Zoom now and, and online meetings and, you know, we've all done fundraising now over over Zoom. But I think there's still an advantage to meeting a person uh, or meeting meeting someone you know face to face, and so just being in these tech hubs is advantageous. But in terms of access to talent, you know, I was just talking to a friend here who's uh, running engineering for a, a startup, a, a database startup, and you know he's in Tel Aviv, and of course lots of talent here. But he's hiring people all over the world, you know, Belarus and Ukraine and Poland and Portugal and the U.S. and, and just like wherever they can find the best talent. And he's built a, a, an amazing team that way. So I think the actual location is becoming less and less important. In 2016, I read a book that I'm sure you're familiar with, Startup Nation, that really just dove deep into, you know, why it is exactly that Israel is such a powerhouse in tech. And immediately after reading that book, I booked a ticket and I flew to Israel and, and spent a few weeks there and just had some amazing conversations with founders. And it felt like back then that tech ecosystem there was just booming. From my conversations with other founders, they're telling me that in 2016, that was still the early days. And today it's a, it's just a totally different beast and it's, it's really booming now. So how do you describe the Israeli tech ecosystem today, just from your perspective? Yeah, I think the concentration helps, right? There's just startups everywhere. If you go to if you go to Tel Aviv or the kind of the surrounding cities, Herzliya uh, is another one that has a lot of uh, startups. And so, yeah, it's become very much kind of similar to uh, to Silicon Valley. One of the things about Israelis is, you know, the country is kind of a an island, right? We're not in the best neighborhood in the world. And so um, you're kind of, uh, everybody's kind of co-located, right? It's a little bit different from the US where people tend to kind of be more uh, geographically uh, dispersed, right? And so... You know, it's easier even even during COVID, people were you know were getting together in the office, and especially uh, if you look at startups now, you know they're back to normal, right? With that kind of let's all sit in an office and and get things done, and uh, so you definitely have that kind of a culture. But in general, I think startups, uh, you know, they breed other startups. You have a startup that succeeds, well, you have a lot of great 
talent, you know, engineers and architects and executives out of that startup that then go on to start other startups. And so you definitely see that with, uh, with successes, it just kind of leads to more and more successes and more uh, VCs that want to invest in that ecosystem. And so, yeah, it takes time to build these things, these, uh, kind of these hubs, but once you do it's, it's, it's magical. Um, you know, much like Silicon Valley. So you're almost what, 10 years into this journey, I think eight years in, what motivates you day to day and, and what excites you day to day and what just really keeps you moving and, and grinding away? Because I, I know 10 years can be a, a long time to be at a company and to be running a company. So what sustains you day to day? Yeah. You know, one of the fun things about startups is things are always changing. You, you always have new challenges. You're never at a point where, okay, I've overcome the challenges and the next step that it's now easy. Right. And I know when you're uh, I remember the the early days when we were just starting and all I wanted was to, you know, raise that series A. And then all I wanted was to, you know, hire those first few engineers after that. Uh, and then I remember thinking to myself, how am I ever going to hire a salesperson or a head of sales? It's like, who would want to come to work for a company that hardly has payroll, let alone any customers, right? That, you know, with proven ability to sell to. So there's always some additional, the next thing always seems impossible, right? How am I going to raise that next round? And so, yeah, I don't think it gets boring. I, I think startups are always more and more challenges. It becomes different. Obviously, when you have, uh, you know, we're now, I don't know, something like 400 people. And when you grow, you have more capacity. But at the same time, you know, other challenges start to happen, right? You can't move as fast or you can't, you know, change directions as fast. It's a little bit like a, in the beginning, you have this little boat that you can you can maneuver very easily. But, you know, it's limited in terms of its range, for example. But, you know, as you, you grow, you're now a bigger boat and a bigger ship and using my Navy analogies, right? But they're harder to steer. You can't easily change directions. And so it's a little bit like that. But yeah, you know, today what drives me a lot of a lot of the customer interactions that I have, you know, solving customer problems. You know, we work with the global two thousand and just seeing the impact that we have on these companies and also on the individuals that, you know, make a bit on the technology of a startup and, you know, they're they're in many cases betting their careers on it. We gotta make them successful and and that's something that that's always exciting, right? And uh, and you wanna make that work. I see you transitioned out of the CEO role in March, 2020. Talk to me about making that decision. I know that can sometimes be very difficult. I know, you know, sometimes founders don't want to do that, or sometimes founders are very excited to, to pass that role on to another CEO and, and switch to a role where they can really focus on product or, you know, whatever the passions are. So what was that transition like for you? Yeah, no, for me, it was, um, you know, I'm, I'm the kind of person that doesn't have much ego, so that wasn't a problem. I'll tell you how it started. I was basically a CEO for the first four and a half years and the company was doing well. We had tripled, at least tripled every single year up to that point. And not that we didn't have our challenges, of course, we, we did. You know, things are never as easy on the inside as they, they look on the outside. But we got to the point where I felt like we needed a head of product. And so I started a search or I was about to start a search. I, I identified a recruiting firm to start a VP product search. The whole job description was ready to go. And I started to look at candidates and I just looking at these candidates and talking to a few early ones, I just felt like I could do the job way better than anybody I could bring to do that job because, you know, I'm a product guy and this was the product I had envisioned and built from the beginning, right? Not because I'm uh, you know better than others, but just, you know, it was, it was the thing that I was so involved in. Whereas being a CEO, I felt like there were a lot of folks that had a lot of experience being CEOs and I could probably more easily find somebody that had more experience there than myself. And so at some point I decided, you know what, maybe I'll just take this product role. That'd be better for the company. And I'll bring somebody who has already been a CEO into the, into the company. And, and then I, uh, I started a search and it took a while. It was challenging. Of course, uh, the, the searches always are for, for any executive actually, 
but ultimately ended up finding a great guy and took another six months to convince him to join <laughs> and then you know talking to his wife and and, and everything but uh, but finally that worked out so uh, uh so so things worked out well i think it's a perfect segue to move into our discussion about the product and and really what the company does so i think anyone listening in here today they've heard of the company they they know the company name but Perhaps they don't know what exactly it is that you do and, and what the product suite does. So can you just give us a high-level overview? Sure. So Dremio is a data lake house, and we enable companies to explore and analyze their data in the cloud. And so if you think about today, all the cloud providers offer object storage. And so by building on that, we offer them a way to build kind of an open data architecture where rather than using a proprietary data warehouse like you know Redshift or, or Snowflake, they can keep the data in open source formats in their own object storage. And then Dremio provides the ability to run SQL queries on that data, including everything you could do with the warehouse inserts, updates, deletes. We accelerate the queries so you get sub-second response times for BI workloads, things like Tableau, Power BI. And that's kind of our core product is really a, what we call a data lakehouse product, uh, which started as essentially a query engine. And then more recently, we've launched a, a lakehouse management service, which includes a catalog. We, we call that Dremio Arctic. And, and the idea there is not only to provide kind of a basic uh, catalog, but to really enable kind of Git for data or, or managing data as code. So you think about all the things that GitHub offers for source code, we're now offering for data. So branches, tags, version control, uh, really trying to enable kind of a new paradigm in data management, much like what you know, things like GitHub and, and GitLab have enabled for software development over the last decade. Did you coin the term data lakehouse or did you see that as a term that others were using and then say, yep, that's it. We're going to take that and you know, lead that and, and really drive that idea forward. No, we didn't come up with it. I think Amazon actually was the first to come up with the term data lakehouse uh, and then Databricks, which is a competitor of ours, they started using it as well. Initially, I was kind of skeptical whether that would kind of catch on as like a term that people would, you know, would use or, or think about. But ultimately it did. And so that made sense to kind of snap into that existing category rather than try to invent our own category. What the name means really is if you think about data lakes, you know, actually going back to Hadoop, which is the stack that I was working on at the previous company, at a company called MapR, you know, data lakes have been around now for a while. And then you've had data warehouses for a while, each had their own pros and cons, right? Like data warehouses, you know, are kind of simpler in some ways, right? You put the data in and you can run any queries on them. Uh, you didn't have to really manage the data. But at the same time, they were very expensive, very proprietary, sometimes not scalable. And then data lakes were much more flexible and you could use different engines on the same data. They were much more open and, and less expensive as well. But a data lake house brings together the benefits of both of those into kind of one solution. So you can run all your warehousing workloads as well as other workloads on kind of open data without being locked in, without the prices that you pay when you use something like you know, Snowflake or any other uh, data warehouse. Something I see a lot of founders debate is what you just described there. And that's, that is, you know, do you move into an existing market category and you really try to shape that category around how you believe that category should function and operate, or do you go out there and create a new category? Was that something that you were heavily debating internally, or could you just shed some light on you what it was like to make that decision to really go after an existing category instead of trying to create a new one? Yeah. I mean, creating a new category is of course, very difficult. And not only difficult, but it's very expensive, right? Because you have to educate the market that that category exists and that companies should allocate a budget to that category. Because up until that point, you know, my definition of the category didn't exist. And so, you know, they weren't planning on spending any money this year on that category, right? And so if you can put yourself in an existing category, 
but in a way that you have a significant advantage within that category, at least for some some portion of the market, I think that's probably the best thing you can do or the easiest thing to do. That's in the end, the kind of the approach that we took. We tried other things along the way, tried to think of coming up with our own category, like a self-service data platform or a data as a service platform. We played around with a lot of different things. And even to this day, when we think about how do we describe something, right? We think about, okay, should we describe this piece of our product as a query engine? Well, it's more than a query engine. So we could say that it's a query engine, but it just does more than every other query engine in the market. Or we could say, no, no, this is not a query engine. This is a lake house engine, for example, right? But do people recognize what that is? Do they, are they looking to buy a lake house engine, right? There, there's all these questions that you have to ask yourself when you're thinking about those trade-offs, right? Do I just play in an existing category and say I'm a lot better than everything else? And maybe try to kind of redefine a little bit of that category and say, well, to be a good one, you need to have these three features as long as that's real, right? And customers really have that pain. Companies really have that pain where they're looking to solve those those things. Then that that actually can work out really well. In your role then as chief product officer, are you deeply involved in things like messaging and positioning? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, everything from yeah, what product are we building? The, the features, the roadmap. How do we talk about the product? Yep. What's a typical day look like for you? Well, yeah, you know, a lot of different things that you do in in product, and so. Today, I was reviewing our 12-month roadmap and kind of looking at the different buckets, the different themes of, of all the releases, what we're doing in each quarter in different areas of the product. I had a, a call with one of our customers this uh, this morning, called one of the partners. So yeah, all sorts of different things. At this point, what's also important for me is kind of mentoring folks. So we have uh, you know product managers on the team that are kind of early in their career, or maybe they've shifted their transition from you know, a different role into product management. So helping them understand kind of what to focus on, right? And how to think strategically and not just about the thing that they heard some customer ask for in the last 24 hours. You know, those are the kind of things that if you can, in general, as a, as a leader in a company, if you can help other people be better, that has a lot of leverage for the company and for those people in their careers, right? And I think that's one of the reasons they, they choose to join a startup is so they can advance their own uh, careers. When I search your name, when I search the company's name, I find success. I find all of this positive media about the funding, the valuations, the big name customers that you work with. But what I've found from interviewing founders is there's always some untold stories there. And a lot of those untold stories are about near-death experiences or high levels of pain that the founders and teams went through in the early days. Do you have any untold stories that you can share with us? You know, just any stories that maybe haven't been shared that widely publicly that can really shed some light on what it's like in those early days and some of that pain that you may have experienced. You know, first of all, I can say that uh, for any kind of early stage founders out there, if you're not sleeping at night, waking up in the middle of the night, that's completely normal. <laughs> happened to me for many, many nights and, and sometimes still happens, but uh, that's normal. And, you know, all sorts of things will happen along the way where it feels like, okay, this is the end. I, I like, I don't think we can recover from this. I don't know what we'll do if we don't make this work. And yeah, we had plenty of cases like that. Uh, I can give you some examples. Our first, uh, you know, we were really early stage. We had, you know, we started with a series A at the time that was uh, for kind of enterprise software, more um, common, I think, than it is today. So we, we didn't really do a seed, although these days, some people just, sometimes it's just terminology. But anyway, we uh, we had done our Series A. We had spent about a year and a half building the product, you know, probably twice as long as we thought it would take, at the first version, and then we put it into uh, our first customer, and it was um, it was at Cisco actually. So they were close by. We were in uh, in Mountain View, there in uh, in Santa Clara, 
or San Jose, I guess. And the thing just blew up in a very significant way. <laughs> Nothing would work. Everything failed. The, the just the exceptions left and right. And we ended up not only not getting them, but demoralizing a lot of people within the company. At the time we were, you know, 10 or 20 people within the organization, all especially the, the engineers, right? Everybody worked hard for multiple weeks trying to make the thing work, including weekends. And it just, we weren't ready. And so that was another lesson is probably wasn't a good idea to start with one of the largest companies in the world. Maybe we should have started with some smaller, less demanding customers. Uh, <laughs> and so that one didn't end so well. A case where it actually did end well was, um, I can't remember how many months later this was, or maybe a year later, this was at a large bank that was using our platform and they were having all sorts of issues and the thing was failing. And, you know, the guy who was um, kind of, he had basically made the purchasing decision and was the main champion for Dremio. He wanted to have a call immediately that next morning, I think uh, 6 a.m. Pacific time. And I was out for the weekend uh, with the family. We were in Napa. And so there wasn't a great solution. Like I got that email at night. I called the rest of the team, the kind of the key engineers. And we said, okay, we're going to have this meeting at 6 a.m. Pacific time. I took my laptop. Of course, you know, as a, as a founder, you have a laptop no matter where you go. I got in the car. I sat in the car and fortunately Zoom had had that feature where you can change the background. And so I was sitting in the car, did some dry runs, making sure that nobody could see it was a car. And so I put the, the Dremio background in the car and took the call from there. And, you know, we, we were all over their issues. And, you know, by the end of the weekend, we had released a new build and solved their problem. And, you know, they were uh, very appreciative of that. And I think to this day, they, they don't know that uh, that's what that meeting looked like on our end. You're screwed. They're going to listen to the podcast <laughs> and they're going to hear the story. It's okay. I think we're, we're well past that point at this point. So I think we're okay. <laughs> this show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now back to today's episode. What did you do early on to really build trust and credibility with paying customers? Obviously, that's something that all B2B startups struggle with, especially if they're selling into the enterprises. How do you get people to trust that you can deliver and trust that you're going to be around in 12 months, 24 months? So what did you do to build that trust early on? Yeah, I think a lot of it is related to how you respond to things, right? When when things go wrong or there's a problem. So how do you interact with those customers? And you have to prove that. And the proving starts in the POC, even before they've paid you a dollar. In fact, it starts in the conversations before. So we had a great you know, sales leader at the time who I brought from our previous company. And he used to tell customers or prospects, you know, before we would start the POC, he would tell them, hey, look, we're early stage or, you know, we're beta or whatever, early stage startup. And what's really important for us is that you measure us not only on, you know, how does the product do? Because there will be issues. We're early stage and, you know, the product hasn't been around for 10 years like Oracle or 20 years. So we want you to measure us also on how we respond to, to issues and how we react to, you know, your requests. And that resonated a lot with these customers because they... I mean, they're not stupid, right? When when you're talking about like, especially an enterprise, right? And they're buying from a startup and a startup with 20 or 50 people or 100 people, they know that, you know, you don't have the maturity of a Microsoft or an Oracle, right? And that there will be problems. What they're buying is they're buying A, really innovative technology that they can't get somewhere else and B, access to the team, 
right? When they buy from Oracle, they don't have access to the the product manager or the founder or the engineering, the folks in engineering that are building it and can, you know, implement a new feature for for them or they don't feel like they can influence the roadmap, right? And that's what they get when they're working with a startup. And so they understand that. And it's just important to remind them, hey, you know what? There are going to be problems and watch how we respond to them. And, and again, you have to live up to that, right? You have to, when they do have a problem in the early days, you got to be all over it. And, and that includes, you know, weekends and holidays and nights. And, you know, we spent a lot of, a lot of hours in those early years when it was a small team, you know, crazy hours, making sure that customers were having success. And I think that paid off. How would you describe your marketing philosophy in those early days? Marketing. Well, we wanted to be, it was important for us to be credible and kind of matter of fact, right? So not, we still wanted to have kind of a bottoms up motion that was important to us. So in our world, like data engineers are often the folks that, you know, are kind of doing that early uh, kind of self-education on the products and the technology. They like to play with products and, and technologies on their own without talking to somebody from sales. And so we made sure that we had a, or we built a, a free version of the product that was, you know, unlimited use in production, was really restricted on a few features, but they could really, you know, use that and, you know, have success with it in production. And then, you know, maybe it was a few months later, they'd be like, you know what, we actually want some of those extra security features, or we want your 24 by seven support. And that would allow us to kind of engage with them. And we found that model to be, you know, lower friction and lower customer acquisition costs than going top down only. Now, as we got bigger, you know, and started working with more and more enterprises, you know, Fortune 500, Global 2000, you have to do both, right? You have to kind of do that bottoms up adoption, the, the product led growth, and at the same time, have a kind of a top down selling motion as well to, to the enterprise. I'm sure in those early days, you had a lot of challenges. What would you say is the biggest challenge that you had to face and overcome in those early days? In the really early days, hiring the engineers was really hard. It was, you know, every one of them, you know, maybe with the exception of a few that, you know, joined us from, you know, previous companies and things like that. But beyond that, you know, you're, you're a company that has maybe done payroll for a few months. And at that point, you're no different from many, many other early stage startups, right? There's no revenue. There's no proof that this is going to work. And you're trying to convince, you know, top talent to, to join. And so that requires an effort from everybody. You know, I was a CEO at the time and I was meeting people. I still have a picture of this one engineer. You know, he was kind of on the fence. I drove over next to where he was living. Can't remember. That was like the, uh, San Mateo, something like that. And we had a burger and then I brought a printed version of the offer letter. I would not leave the dinner until he signed. And so I have a picture of him signing the offer letter with a pen on the, on the trunk of my car. So that's how <laughs> tenacious... And we were in those early days to hire the best talent. And so that was a challenge. I think the next, uh, after that, the the challenge was, uh, you know, of course, getting those early customers, making sure that the product actually works at scale was hard because, you know, in the early days, we we were working with a lot of these big, you know, enterprise customers, but, you know, we were a small team and we had limited ability to, you know, test everything at, you know, really high scale, really high performance requirements. And so sometimes we were kind of learning along the way. And that was difficult as well. So yeah, lots of challenges. And like I said, yeah, I personally lost a lot of sleep. <laughs> Do you watch Succession at all? I have not. I know I watched, I think maybe one episode, but uh, <laughs> they have a line in there and it's uh, one of the main characters and he just says that he's never met anyone that he trusts that sleeps well. So I think that's a good sign. If someone's sleeping well, then there's there's probably something wrong there. So it's a good sign if you don't sleep well. I think that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> 
So what did you say to this early talent to get them to say yes? Obviously, you took them to a good burger joint, gave them a good burger, but sure, there's much, much more than that. You know, were you selling them this big dream of what it could be? Were you selling them on, you know, your capabilities as a leader and a founder? What were you saying to them to get them to give you a chance? I think you got to use all of those things. I don't think there's just one thing. So first of all, of course, the vision, right? They need to believe that this can be a big successful company otherwise the economics won't make sense for them right they're gonna if you're hiring the best of the best right they have the option to join any company they could go work at google they could go work at uh, you know meta or apple and 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 have guaranteed pay every every month and good guaranteed pay right and so for this to make sense for them the company has to be successful right and you have to uh, in those early days you know you have to show them that that that's possible, right? That this market is a big market, that we have a unique ability to tackle that market because of our experience, because of some early technology and prototyping that we had done. And then also, you know, we had great investors, right? We raised our Series A from, you know, Lightspeed and and uh, and Redpoint. Both have had, you know, really good successes. And I think that's another signal for people that want to join the companies who are your investors. And, and that's why that matters, right? You know, sometimes people will tell me that, uh, well, you know, a dollar is a dollar. And I think that becomes more true towards later rounds, but in your earlier rounds, the brand name of the investor actually matters. And it matters, you know, one of the reasons it matters is for that early stage talent, right? That you're recruiting. If you have, you know, tier one VCs that have invested in the company, that's a signal for them. And that's going to help you hire people. In fact, it's going to help you raise more money as well. In your future rounds, you know, people, investors like to follow other tier one investors. And so that is actually an important thing and in, in, uh, an important consideration in your early rounds. Yeah, it seems like that idea that, you know, dollar is a dollar was a really big part of the narrative in what, like 2021, maybe early 2022. But a lot of the founders that I've spoken to, you know, they raised cash from some of those firms that were saying, we don't want a board seat. You know, we don't want to be involved. We just want to write you a big, big check and and let you, you know, build from there. And one of the founders I was talking to is in a you know, pretty tight situation right now. And he essentially says he has, you know, no one there, like the the investors there who you know funded it, they're not involved in it. You know, they don't have a board seat, and they're just not really there to support him and help him navigate. And now he has a lot of regrets that he ended up you know, taking money from someone who gave them a better valuation, but they're not there to provide that support in a moment in a time when you know, he really really needs it. So I found that to be just an interesting look into how things have evolved over just what the last two years. Yeah, yeah. In general, uh, you know, people don't like to hear this, but the valuations in these funding rounds are not that important. At the end of the day, you know, the company's going to go through dilution. And so sometimes more, sometimes less, depending on the company. But if the company has a great outcome, everybody's going to be happy and the founders will be happy, right? And if the company doesn't have a good outcome, nobody's going to be happy, right? I think it's it's probably rare that you look back and say, oh, you know what? I'm not happy because, you know, we raised our series B or A or whatever at a lower valuation than we could have, right? I think you have to optimize for, the success of the company, that's the number one thing to, to optimize for, right? And in these early rounds, you're absolutely right. You want to work with VCs that have that experience working with founders in those stages of, of company building, right? And yeah, you know, a lot of late stage investors in the last couple of years before the downturn had started investing in early rounds, right? But of course, you know, they had no experience doing that. They could offer better valuations, but certainly they couldn't offer the same kind of support that you could get from a, an investor that's been investing in series A or seed stage rounds for many, many years or, or more. What's a good outcome for you? What's an outcome with Dremio that would make you happy? 
You know, I, I really don't think about that much. People ask all the time, candidates would ask a lot, what's your exit strategy, that kind of thing. It's kind of a similar question, right? At the end of the day, what I always tell people is the best outcome is achieved by building a great company, right? With lots of customers, customers that are happy, you know, you grow your revenue, you continue to grow the company and, and at a good growth rate, and then you'll have options, right? One option, of course, is to IPO the company. That's more in your control, right? You gotta get the right metrics, but um, but that's in your control. Another option is somebody comes and says, I want to buy the company. And But the best acquisitions happen when you don't need to be acquired. So you really don't want to be aiming for that as your only option, right? That could happen along the way. And you might look at it and say, you know what, this is a, this is a good outcome. It's uh, you know financially and otherwise. For me, what's also important is the outcome for yeah, the employees of the company, right? The yeah, especially folks that have been at Dremio for for a while, or 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 were at Dremio for a while, even if they're no longer here. Yeah, they put in a lot of effort. It's it's a big sacrifice working at a startup, personal sacrifice. And so I want to see those folks have success as well. And I think that to me is an important outcome. From what I read online, the company was valued about I think a year ago at two billion dollars. So you're at the, the infamous unicorn status. What we always like to ask about, you know, this is, you know, what was that intention early on? So when you first had the idea to launch the company, in the back of your head, did you say, this is going to be big, this could be a unicorn, you know, we're really swinging for a home run? Or did you just kind of stumble into it and all of a sudden a few years in say, whoa, we really have something here. This could be a big, big company. You know, I don't know how other founders feel about this, but when, you know, as, as a first time founder... So I, I, I was an executive previously at a, at, a, at a startup that went through a similar kind of growth trajectory. But as a first-time founder, I really didn't think that far into the future, right? I was more focused on the uh, the near term, you know, and always the thing in some ways that's that's next, right? Uh, the need to raise, raise a frown, start my own company. That was in itself a cool thing. If I'd start a company and raise money, I'd never done that before. So I, I never really at the time thought about, okay, how big could this be? But of course, you know, I wanted to make sure that I'm, you know, in a, you know, playing in a space, playing in a market that can support, you know, big, successful companies, right? Otherwise, everything would be hard, right? It'd be hard to raise money. It'd be hard to, you know, basically build the kind of company that you, that you want to build. And, you know, we, you know, there's a lot of challenges that are outside of your control, you know, competition, you know, just things that happen in the course of a company, you know, making sure you have a big enough market to play in. That's one that you can, I feel like you, you should make sure you have that when you're starting a company. So that, that was something that I, I did think about is the size of the market, but uh, yeah, never really thought about, okay, well, this is going to be a unicorn or, you know, how quickly can we get to that? That all came later. Right. And, you know, we were also in a good time as well. Right. So um, being lucky is important, I like to say. And yeah, we were, we were building this company and I'd say in good times, which, which made some of those things easier, right. And then they would be in you know, in difficult times. I'm sure there's a lot of factors that contributed to your success, but if you had to pick out one, two, three things, like what did you get right, do you think? Yeah, I think we identified a, a significant market opportunity. So data analytics and specifically data analytics in the cloud, you know, with the growth of data and how data is you know, becoming more and more important, that has continued to happen. And even more specifically, you know, data lakes have become more and more important throughout you know, these years. So we definitely got that that piece right. I think we also got right the culture, right? When we started the company in those first, in those early years, you know, we couldn't have achieved what we've achieved so far without that kind of tenacity, 
the focusing on results, you know, all hands on deck, you know, it wasn't a nine to five kind of, uh, operation, you know, people were, were committed, right. And, and we worked hard and, and, and had fun doing it, I think. But that was, I think, another uh, really important thing that we did, at least in the first, you know, three, four years, right? And to this date, you know, we maintained a great environment, a great culture where it's, you know, fun to work, um, people are respectful towards each other. We still have that kind of focus on results, you know, getting shit done, avoiding any kind of like, you know, politics and, and that kind of stuff. And so I think that's also an important thing when you're building a company is establishing a good culture from the beginning. And you can't really do that. You know, people talk about writing down the values and writing down the culture. And yeah, we did some of that, but it's all by example, right? Um, it's all examples set by, you know, the leaders and the early employees, you know, that then kind of sets the, sets the tone for everybody else that joins the company. What advice would you give to a founder? Let's say they're, you know, just raising their seed round. What's the number one piece of advice that you'd give to them? I think it's really important to be focused, right? It's it's so easy to get distracted with so many different things. And when you look at kind of the opportunity that you're chasing, really try to identify what are the key kind of pain points that customers uh, or potential customers in that market have, and then focus on solving those, right? Don't try to solve every problem for everyone because you, it's just very difficult to be successful that way. You, you end up spreading yourself too thin. You can't deliver a great solution. And so I think, you know, that kind of focus is really important. And then to the extent that you can really try to get the product right before you kind of move on to that next phase, right? Because if you don't do that, then you end up paying for it later, right? You pay, pay for it in, you know, too much technical debt, or you end up, you know, chasing customers when you're not ready. And then you, you have to add all sorts of custom things for each customer. So really, yeah, try to focus the product, focus the part of the market that you're attacking, try to make that more narrow. And of course that's going to hit head up against reality, right? Which is that you are running out of money and you need to be able to raise another round and to raise another round, you need X number of customers or revenue. And so there's the theory, which I think is important to keep in mind that you want to achieve that, but you got to balance that also with, you know, the realities of, of building a company, right? Which is that I think it's analogous to kind of an airplane, right? You, you add fuel to the plane and, but you're, you're basically usually gliding down and um, you're running out of fuel and eventually you're going to crash and you have to be able to get more fuel before you crash. Right. And so that's what it companies like in, you know, probably the first decade, right. Where you're dependent on venture capital for the most part, you have to be able to be in a position to raise more money. Otherwise company won't exist. And so as a CEO, I had times when people came up to me and said, you know what, this is going to be too hard. If we do this, we should do this. We should pivot and do this other thing. And the reality was that, you know, there was no way we were going to do that other thing because, you know, we were going to be within six months needing to raise more money. And the only way we would have a chance at raising more money was to now go and acquire our first five customers, right? It's just, just as an example. So yeah, important to keep the, the realities of building a company in mind when you're doing all this. With over $400 million raised to date, based on all of that fundraising, what would be the number one piece of advice that you'd give to a founder? Well, if you're specifically asking about fundraising, I think that depends on the round. You know, you know, when you're doing your first round or your first few rounds, that might be before you, I guess it depends on the, the, the market that you're in and the type of company. But in our world, kind of more enterprise SaaS or enterprise infrastructure to, to be specific, first couple of rounds are more about building the product and proving that it has a viability, right? So getting kind of brand name beta customers using it. Later, it becomes more about the metrics and customer acquisition and revenue and 
and those kinds of things. But investors are looking to invest in in the beginning in a team and a big market. That, that's really what what matters. And they they don't want to lose out on opportunity. So I've also found that if investors feel like, you know, there's a, a company here and other tier one investors are going to invest in this, they're going to be more interested in investing in it. And so what you really need to do is find that one investor that really believes in this. And then that makes the whole round much easier, right? And it later becomes more numbers, right? When you're talking about series D, series E, at that point, it's all about the metrics. All right. Well, we are up on time here. Or sorry, we're over on time. I, I don't want to keep you any longer. Before we wrap here, if there's any founders that are listening in and really just want to follow along with your journey as you build, where should they go? Yeah, I'd invite anybody, first of all, to our uh, our company's website and, and our blog, drivemeo.com slash blog. And you know, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn and, and always happy to help other founders along the journey. So um, if you ever want to reach out or have some questions, uh, feel free to reach out to me. Amazing. Tomer, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. I really appreciate yeah. it. It's, it's been such a fun conversation. I know it's going to be a hit with our audience. Yeah. Thanks for uh, inviting me on the show. No problem. Keep in touch.